The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. In the headlines this morning, President Trump sparks the biggest crude rally on record, telling CNBC he's negotiated a significant production cut from Saudi Arabia and Russia as producers call for an emergency OPEC Plus meeting. Asian stocks trade lower ahead of today's non-farm payrolls report after U.S. jobless claims spike to a record 6.6 million. Chinese services companies cut jobs at the fastest rate on record in March as activity rebounds from a record low but remains in contraction. EU Commission head Ursula von der Leyen unveils a 100 billion euro short-term work scheme to help the European countries hardest hit by the pandemic. This is European solidarity in action. It is for Italy, Spain and others and it is for Europe's future. COVID-19 cases now topped 1 million, whilst the UK government reportedly has a worst-case scenario that puts the country's death toll at 50,000. Uh, For all you driving Americans out there, U.S. gas prices, as you know, have fallen below $2 a barrel, the first time we've seen that for a very long time. Well, your own president probably is helping those prices back above $2 a barrel. Crude prices jumping over 20% in their biggest one-day rally on record after the president told CNBC he's helped negotiate a deal between Russia and Saudi Arabia to cut oil output. In a call with CNBC's Joe Kernan, Trump said he'd spoken with Russian President Vladimir Putin and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, saying he expects them to announce an output cut of between 10 and 15 million barrels per day. Trump later tweeted, adding, quote, it'll be great for the oil and gas industry. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia has called for an emergency OPEC plus meeting in a statement published by state media. The kingdom said President Trump had requested the meeting. Well, let's take a look at uh, how the markets finished overnight then and what that now means for the direction of the oil price this hour. Juliana. Well, this morning we are seeing a little bit of a retreat in the oil price, but this comes after the best day on record for oil with both Brent and WTI cruising north by more than 20 percent after President Trump confirmed this phone call and set hopes uh, high in terms of production cuts coming from uh, OPEC+. But WTI this morning trading down about 5 percent, around $24 per barrel. Brent trading down 4.2 percent to just over $28 per barrel. But let's uh, take a look at the trade we saw yesterday in the oil majors. We saw a significant move higher for the U.S. energy stocks. Exxon Mobil driving 7.6% higher. Over here, you got Chevron up more than 11%. So a very welcome boost by oil equity. 
equity investors this morning. Uh, so uh, pretty significant moves there. Royal Dutch Shell trading nearly 11% higher as well. Taking a look at broader U.S. markets, this provided a boost in sentiment, and we saw all three major averages end higher yesterday. The Dow Jones recovering about 470 points and uh, ending just over the 21,400 mark. S&P 500 cruised about 2.3% higher. All 11 sectors in that basket were positive, led by energy up 9%. And you saw, of course, the biggest single stock movers there. Discretionary was the laggard yesterday, up just about a third of a percent. And then the tech-heavy Nasdaq just lagging the broader market, but still posting gains of 1.7%. Let's take a look and see if these these gains will hold today. We saw a bit, we're seeing a bit of a pullback in the Asian session. And there you can see, according to futures, we're in for a bit of a retreat this morning as well. Yesterday, in addition to the developments in energy markets, we also got that staggering jobless claims report. And today we will get more information on the U.S. employment picture with the non-farm payrolls report. Jeff. Thanks very much indeed. Let's move on. Speaking to CNBC, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan gave his take on a possible oil output cut. There's just a substantial amount of excess uh, capacity being generated every day. As you know, so much excess excess, uh, supply, I should say, being generated every day, so much so that we're starting to worry about storage uh, capacity for it. So this this will uh, be extremely helpful. It'll be particularly helpful as we come out of this virus, and it'll speed the time, uh, hopefully, where uh, the supply demand for oil can get into balance. But we're a long, long way from that. The Dallas Fed President, Robert Kaplan. Sean Corrigan joins us, Director at Cantillon Consulting. And let's bring Steve into the conversation as well. Sean, let me start with you. There is part of me that is the gas-guzzling motorist that looks at this and thinks, oh, I'm not sure I want higher energy prices at this point. But obviously, with the, the Whiting Chapter 11 story and risk around the high-yield market because of this energy exposure in the credit markets here, I guess this brings some stability. How much difference is this going to make to the direction of the price, do you think? Well, there are obviously problems with this, as, as no doubt many of your other commentators have said, in that the, we have no details and the scale of the cut is such that both Russia and Saudi Arabia, if they're the only people participating, have to make very hefty uh, reductions in their own output, which is going to be problematical to say the least. You're definitely right about the U.S. shale patch, but we saw this in uh, when we had the, the last collapse in, 20, in late 2014 in through to the 2016 lows. We had an enormous turnover in the ownership of oil resources, oil and gas resources, but the, the legal system in the States, the, the bankruptcy procedures and so on and so forth worked perfectly well. Uh, production dipped a little because the oil price was low, but all the assets were there, all the skill was there, and everybody went back to work when it was needed. So there's no reason why the legal structures we have can't deal even with these extreme circumstances under which we're operating. Do we now have to think about uh, OPEC and the supply deals in terms of OPEC plus plus? Do you think there's any way that we can see uh, a loose alliance of the Russians, the Saudis, and now Washington hanging together permanently? Well, um, strange times make strange bedfellows, but the the problem with OPEC has been ever since the US uh, shale revolution that instead of the Saudis having to keep their own 
car- cartel, if we're allowed to use the word, their own their own coterie on, online, and then negotiate with the outsiders like Russia, they now have a three-way trade. So the, 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 the gaming of that is very difficult. One would imagine, though, that if it is that important to the Americans, that they might be having a quiet word on, on uh, in other areas, because as we know, there's a great deal of, uh, of, of political tension and military tension, indeed, in that area. And um, and and the uh, the heir apparent to the Saudi throne is would not particularly be a happy man, I wouldn't think, if the Americans would start to make noises about withdrawing support. Sean, very good morning to you. Can I make a couple of points and just see what you think about them? One, uh, the algos don't discriminate. So all those um, pundits, yes, they're getting very exacerbated about the numbers and whether Mr. Trump was exaggerating or not. When the algos see the word cut 10, 15 million barrels, the algos don't discriminate. So that's my first point. Secondly, my, my esteemed colleagues in the oil industry uh, get very worked up. The, the scribes, the OPEC uh, reporters get very worked up. They go, Where are the barrels going to come from? Where are the barrels going to come from? We, this, this cannot be right. Trump's wrong. But they're missing the point as well. This is about as much about sentiment as anything else as well. And once the sentiment moves uh, and then everyone has to work out their positioning on the back of it and the shorts get squeezed as well, uh, that has as much effect as the real cutting the barrels off the table as well. And the third point I want to make is, is my uh, the old uh, Secretary General, Mr. El Badri, used to say to me when the hedges were in the business, he said that was worth around about 10 to $20, depending on the time, in terms of extra on the price or extra off the price as well. So we must remember as well, this isn't just about the physical supply and demand in the world. This is also uh, about uh, what the speculators are doing and, and how they can exaggerate price moves. Sean, any comments? Well, you're very, that that's definitely makes sense, Steve. As you say, if, uh, if people were heavily short into this market and trying to drive it lower to find out where the pain thresholds are, well, they themselves have, uh, have had a bit of a, a, a cupboard door slam in their faces with this tweet. And it's also something that, uh, that it's, it's the very nature of this idea that we can all trade by leaving it all to a computer. No computer can deal with Donald Trump's uh, Twitter feed, I, I would hazard. But on the other hand, the physical demand destruction from us all being locked in our homes for weeks on end and all our flights grounded and half our container ships locked in the wrong port is, is undoubtedly huge. And we, we are definitely hearing lots of stories about storage on land, in tankers, in pipelines, all filling up and refinery throughputs are, are plunging. So there is, there is still a danger here that and even if we cut, we don't need any more oil than we're currently producing, given the extreme circumstances under which we're operating. Yeah, Sean, I 100% agree, of course. So we're not going to find any uh, dissent here as well. But two more points, if I can. Uh, one, uh, the fact is there are three curves and everyone seems to forget there is the demand curve, but also the supply curve and the cost curve as well. And as Jeff was mentioning, Whiting earlier on as well, there is no doubt about it. They're trying to get the cost down uh, to match uh, the kind of price where they can make some money a break even, but they're not managing to do that at the moment. Then we're going to see more uh, supply destruction. There is no doubt about it. So everyone has to remember there's two other curves as well. The other point is about income, if I can move us onto that as well. Very exacerbated. Twitterati getting annoyed with me saying it's right that the banks should have cut their dividends uh, earlier in the week as well. But of course, the likes of Shell, the likes of BP are trying desperately to hang on to their dividend yield as it is, even though it's 10% plus at the moment as well. This kind of move would actually satiate the income funds as well, just a little bit in what has been a terrible week. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it'd be nice if uh, we can all we can all rail at speculators a big business. But on the other hand, a lot of the ownership are people with pensions. And when we come to calculate the pension uh, arithmetic uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll see a 20, 30% cut in the equity valuations. We'll get some relief on the bond price side, 
But the horror is, of course, is that the discount rates applied to the liabilities have also gone down dramatically. So there's going to be a big actuarial hole in pensions. So even mum and dad, uh, they, they might not like big oil, but but mum and dad would like to have something in there when, when they retire. And, and, and they don't want their pension companies struggling and making the wrong decisions here either. Sean, I want to just pick up on Steve's point about supply destruction that could could come eventually because, you know, shutting a well is very expensive. And for some of the smaller producers, it makes sense for them to continue losing money uh, at levels like this because it would be even more expensive to turn off the taps. But at what price or for how long would oil need to stay at current place prices for some of these smaller producers to finally, you know, shut down the wells and turn off the taps? Well, I think if you look at what the EIA has been putting out over the past year or so, the, the, the financial situation is better than it was uh, three, four, five years ago when we, uh, 2014, when we last faced this sort of uh, sort of problem. But undoubtedly, there, there are going to be losses all through upstream, downstream, midstream. Um, I guess the issue to that is not only at what level are the basic producers, uh, are the marginal producers uh, going to start to feel the pain, but when do their hedge books roll off? Um, we've been told a lot that they learned the lessons of the last time around, and there is a lot more coverage. But that's a, that's 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 a finite uh, a finite thing. The umbrella wears out. So sometime in the next three, six, nine months, even the ones who currently are comfortable are going to start to feel the squeeze if this persists. Sean, let me move you on here because I want to talk about other topics as well. And I know that um, you've been a, a critic in the past of what you've seen as um, central bank excess, shall we say, and the, the way the last response to the global financial crisis that we had, um, you may feel, has, has produced unintended consequences in financial markets. This time round, I think everybody's ripped up the rule book and thrown it out of the window and said, we will just provide liquidity wherever we can, whether it's monetary or fiscal. One, do you think central banks and governments are going about this the right way? And two, what do you think we end up with when we start to see the virus rate or the infection rate roll over here? Are we headed for inflation? Are we headed for stagflation? What does the world look like post-coronavirus? Well, uh, yeah, OK, there's a lot in there. Yes, I'm a critic of what they've done over the last 10 years. And part of the reason that, that we were so exposed and so vulnerable, so over leveraged going into this, as unforeseeable as it was, um, is because of that, that long period of, of over easy money and the fact that every time there was a hiccup, one central bank or the other rushed, rushed to the rescue, rushed to pull more in, rushed to reduce rates further. Um, you know, Pavlov's dogs do salivate when you ring the bell. Um, but, um, yeah, the issue here is now, well, the, the, the thing here is this isn't really a government or a market failure, a, 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 a corporate or a market failure. This is government saying, go home, turn the factory lights off, put the car in the garage and sit there. So if they're going to stop everyone having the means of producing and selling, whether it's their labor or their goods, then, OK, there is some responsibility for them somehow to give us in our state of siege the necessities we want. Now, are they doing that the right way by going back to the old central bank rule book just because it's the easy and the quick way? That's that's highly arguable. You can kind of understand why they did it, but it's probably the case they're not doing it the right way. And we now have a situation where they're all leapfrogging one another. And every day we get a new program to lend some money or to buy something that we weren't lending to or buying the day before. I mean, there's there's, there's a complete rush to paper the whole planet in money. 
Now, that can only have bad consequences because they will not reverse it quickly enough. When they do let us out, when we do start to to have goods and services that we can buy and exchange and trade again, and, of course, financial assets are are therefore seen to be more stable, the Fed has put, what, a trillion dollars into the monetary base in the last five weeks. A trillion dollars. Um, uh, Add on to that that the banks themselves have multiplied. Add on again that money has flooded into money market funds from other sources. There's an enormous amount of dry tinder there, which at the moment we can't spend, and we're also happy to hold that for safety. The minute those two circumstances change, it's going to be dramatic. Sean, where does that money go? Does it go, A, to where it's needed eventually, which is rebuilding economies and uh, into employment, or B, as you might be alluding to, does it end up in a stock market that just goes off to the races again once uh, that criteria that Jeff was talking about, i.e., that we overcome coronavirus, but we still have the economic malaise thereafter? Well, clearly, you know, Steve and, and, and Jeff from talking to people that everybody here is itching, waiting, hoping they found the bottom that they can be in when that rally comes. Everybody assumes there will be one. And undoubtedly, that will be the first reaction. The question is, how much damage have we done to underlying businesses? How much caution is now built into the system where before there was just blue skies euphoria? So, yes, we might have a rally from here. Is it something that's sustained or do we then get a long drumbeat that all these businesses currently pleading for support with bad balance sheets have actually got seriously impaired businesses and are going to have to retrench even if the underlying economy has gone better? That would certainly take some of the shine off the ultimate rally. But there is an awful lot of monetary fuel there. It's going to go somewhere. Uh, Sean, I just want to pick you up on um, what we heard in the last 24 hours on the employment front out of the U.S. I mean, staggering numbers there in the last two weeks. The economy suffered nearly 10 million job losses. Is there a point uh, where job losses become so severe that there's permanent damage done to the U.S. economy that can't be undone, that won't rebound when this crisis is all said and, and done, regardless of how much stimulus the authorities throw at it? Well, there, there is that there is that issue. I mean, uh, let, let, OK, let, on the one hand, let's not be too dramatic about this. We've rebuilt before. We've seen economies rebuild from absolute rubble. I mean, look at the look at the defeated nations in the Second World War. And to some extent, most of the of the victorious ones within a year or two years, things were be, beginning to come back. There is an undoubted loss of wealth. Though. There's an undoubted amount of hardship that's been created. People's savings have been depleted. Even now, most of the help is lending money to businesses. So you had a perfectly good business, which was paying its bills. Now you're going to have to borrow for three, four, five, six months in order to, 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 to keep your customers alive and to keep your, your employees uh, fed and watered. You've got the debt still. So somewhere along the line, you've still got to work it off. So there are all sorts of questions. And then there's the whole issue of so much of the world has shut down here. How do we put the bits together? Because like what they're seeing in China, a lot of them have gone back to their factory, but they don't have any supplies. They don't have any orders and they can't ship it. So what is the how do how do we all get going? It's going to it's not going to be flipping a switch, I don't think. Sean, great to have you on the programme once again. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. Sean Corrigan, director of Cantalon consulting. Uh, Coming up on the programme, the Chinese service sector struggles to rebound as the country emerges from lockdown. We're going to take a look at the data when we come back. And for more on how the coronavirus is weighing on the global economy, check out the Squawk Box podcast.
If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Well, yesterday, European markets did manage to advance with the stock 600 rallying about 0.4%. Oil and gas stocks leading the charge higher. Now this morning, we're looking at a little bit of a pullback here in Europe. The FTSE MIB is looking at a more than 200-point drop at the open. The CAC 40, the DAX, and the FTSE 100 are pointing to double-digit losses at the open. And today, the focus will be data-wise as services PMI is coming through for the Eurozone, uh, as well as over in the United states and in terms of the employment picture we're going to get some more data with the non-farm payrolls report due later today for the u.s this comes after a staggeringly high number of americans reported uh claimed unemployment benefits yesterday bringing the two-week total to around 10 million so a lot more coming through on the employment front let's take a look at the asian session overnight and what we're seeing there uh, red across the board as you can see here but overall contained in terms of the magnitude of the moves lower we've got the nikkei 225 trading down about to 0.7%. The Hang Seng down to 0.8%. And uh, over in South Korea, the cost be down about 70 basis points. Jeff? Terrific. Let's update you on some of the data. China's services activity has declined for a second consecutive month, even as public lockdowns were lifted and shops began to reopen in the country. Chinese services PMI for March came in at 43. That is the second lowest on record and firmly in contraction territory. But it rebounded from February's historic low of 26.5. What's that doing for the Asian session? Let's get out to Sherry in Hong Kong. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff. Good morning, guys. So it's a down session in the greater China market. As you saw there, Hang Seng down 0.8% and uh, smaller gain, uh, smaller losses coming through for mainland Chinese stocks on the back of, uh, uh, you know, these uh, Chinese, Chaixin services PMI numbers coming in below that 50 handle. So that's really the boom and bust level and really showing pessimism, uh, really outpacing at this point still optimism. And uh, we're talking about Chaishin PMIs. So we're talking about private, much uh, smaller uh, companies uh, trying to and perhaps more struggling uh, to see that kind of recovery compared to the official PMI numbers that we got earlier this month. So this is the second weakest on record, that 43 uh, uh, number for a PMI. In the meantime, though, I think it's more important to talk about the PBOC commentaries that we got because the central bank of China, once again, highlighting how they have enough policy tools. And I think it's really natural for any central bank to really highlight that they have the room to deal with the negative economic impact of the coronavirus. But at the same time, they said that, you know, a lot of considerations uh, have to be made before they adjust the deposit rate cut. Remember, there have been a lot of whispers, chatters in the market about more central bank action in China. The next one would have been a deposit rate cut. If you uh, talk to some people out there in the markets, the PBOC is saying 
that we need to think about CPI, the inflation side of the story, and also the depreciation risks for the Chinese currency as well. So they are actually holding off. For now, in terms of cutting the deposit rate,、uh, I think it's also you know the the other rationale behind all this is they don't really want to encourage people savers to pull out their money from the banks because that's probably the last thing Beijing wants right now. Even on top of the you know already existing pressure. On mainland banks, at the same time, they don't want to discourage saving by the Chinese people there. So、uh, perhaps that's the reason why we see the central bank of China holding off on that cut on deposit rate at this point. Guys, back to you. Uh, Sherry, thank you so much for that update.、Uh, Samsung has temporarily closed its U.S. home appliance factory after two workers tested positive for coronavirus. The facility in South Carolina will be sanitized and reopened on Monday. Tesla shares rallied and extended trade after the carmaker announced a record number of first quarter deliveries for its Model Y. The group said production of the SUV was also ahead of schedule. Tesla's American factories operated normally for the first three months of the year until production was suspended at the end of March. Despite the news, Kikinos Associates founder Jim Chanos told CNBC why Tesla is still a favorite short position. We are still basically maximum short Tesla. It's still one of my favorite positions.、Um, nothing's changed in my viewpoint here. What I find fascinating about Tesla is that the 2021 estimates, which track the stock on the way up, are now being cut dramatically. I think Tony Sakanagi, who you know, cut his、uh, 2021 adjusted EPS number yesterday from $18 to $11. I mean, that's not affected by the virus. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.